part two in Sounds Familiar, and we're looking at a bunch of different verses that maybe whether you're a church person or not, you may have come across these verses. And in particular, today I want to look at Jeremiah 29, 11, which is a really important scripture for us as a church. It was foundational for our founding pastors. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. I don't know how observant you are, but as you walk through the main auditorium doors on the right, there's a huge sticker on the wall that has this verse uh, printed there. And funny story, when we f- were first setting up the campus and getting ready to launch, uh, there's a lady, non-Christian lady, she runs a company that do the big decal stickers, and she came in to install that big scripture on the wall. And as she was installing it, naturally she read it. And as she finished installing it on the wall, she stood back and she said, that's a really nice quote. Who wrote it? And I was like, God. God wrote Jeremiah 29, 11. But you might read that at first taking and go, that's nice. That sounds encouraging, and it is. But actually, like many verses, there's more to it. And as we dive deeper, what we're going to discover is there's a depth to the story that could encourage us no matter what we face. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into it today. Father God, would you speak? We believe, God, that you're not just a distant idea. You're not just this distant Uh, authority in the sky, but you're a close and a personal God who speaks to your people. So I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be open, that we would hear from you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we jump in a little deeper, what I want to do is just give a little bit of a historical background on the nation of Israel. I realize that's a huge thing and there's a lot of depth to that, but I want to just give us a brisk walkthrough to set the scene so that we understand what we're dealing with when we unpack it a little further. So in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, God says to a man named Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you so many children that your descendants would be as numerous as the stars, so much you couldn't even count. And as a result, you would be the father of a nation. And God says to him, I'm going to have you, the father of this nation, lead this nation into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Hello. And these 12 sons end up living in Egypt because of the famine that was going on in the day. They end up moving and living in Egypt. Now, after living there for a while, the ruler of Egypt dies, and a new ruler steps in. And this new ruler doesn't like the idea of all these Israelites living throughout Egypt uh, because he can see that day by day they're growing in number, they're growing in power. And so in order to halt their multiplication, he forces them into slavery. Now, after a few hundred years of slavery, God commissions a man named Moses. Maybe you've heard of him. He's the guy that stood in front of Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And after 10 plagues, eventually Pharaoh's like, fine, I can't take it anymore. Get your people and get out. And Moses leads them to freedom through the Red Sea. So Moses leads people from the water out into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that they wander around for 40 years in pursuit of this promised land. Now that sounds terrible, and it was, but something good came out of it. It was in that time that God downloaded the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws that would help shape Israel into an incredible nation. Now, on that journey in pursuit of the promised land, their leader Moses eventually dies. He doesn't make it in time. And upon dying, he hands over the leadership to a man named Joshua. So now it's Joshua that has the task of leading God's chosen people, the Israelites, into the promised land. Remember the one that was promised at the start to Abraham, the one flowing with milk and honey? That land. 
Now, it turns out that the Israelites were broken into 12 different groups of people, 12 tribes, uh, based on their descendants. Those were the 12 sons of Jacob that I mentioned earlier. And so one at a time, tribe by tribe, they enter, they conquer, and they settle in the promised land. And now that they're all living in there, some time passes by, and eventually they decide, you know what? We are sick of being led only by God and by God's messengers, like prophets and judges. They decide they want to be like the other nations around them, and they want to appoint an earthly king. And so they plead to God, God, would you let us appoint an actual person to be our king and to be our leader? And God knows this is not the best idea, but he allows the Israelites to have what they think they need. And they appoint Saul as the first king in a long line of kings. Now, some of those kings honor God. They love God and they lead people towards him. They're obedient towards his commands. And some of those kings along the line disobey God. And they lead the people towards that disobedience and that rebellion. And what we find is over time, the Israelites keep going back to rebellion. They keep trying to put their own way above God's way and turning their back on God. They keep going back, and what happens is because of this rebellion and disobedience, God allows them to be overthrown and exiled out of the promised land. They're deported from the promise into a place called Babylon. They are exiled into a place called Babylon, far from the comfort of their home, far from the promise, far from their purpose. They weren't where they wanted to be. They weren't where they should have been. And with every step they took, it just seemed like they were getting further and further away from their dreams, their plans, their identity, their home, their place in the world, Babylon. Babylon that represents loss, hopelessness, regret, frustration, disappointment, and grief. In fact, the word Babylon itself means confusion. Have you ever felt like you were living in Babylon? Maybe it's circumstances that you couldn't control that led to you having to leave your homeland, like your actual homeland, your nation. And now you find yourself here in a foreign land trying to rebuild your life, but it's hard. Maybe the dream for your marriage seems to be slipping through your fingers right in front of your eyes. It could be that you've experienced the loss of a dream for your business, your career, or your job. And you're not only wondering when, but you're also wondering if you'll ever discover your purpose again. It could be that you're living in the consequences of your own mistakes. And now you're just trying to pick up the pieces of a broken life. Babylon. And it's in this context that God speaks to a prophet who's just someone that would declare the word of God and, and warn people and bring realignment to their lives in, in alignment with heaven. He speaks to a prophet named Jeremiah. And he says, Jeremiah, I want you to write a letter to all those Israelites that have been exiled into Babylon. And so we read these words in that letter, Jeremiah 29, from verse 10 through to 14. It says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I've promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, plans to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. And if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. He says, I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. What we have to understand is that all through Scripture, God makes promises, right? Like if you've ever read the Bible, you see it's just filled with promises. And many of these promises are made to particular people at a particular time in a particular place. And this promise here is written to the Israelites during the Babylonian exile way back before us. 
And we might read that and go, okay, so that's not for us. Perhaps true, but it's not irrelevant to us. Because every promise in God's Word, when we read it, what it does is it gives us a glimpse. It gives us an insight. It also opens the door so we can see what the nature and the character of God is like. Because remember, God's never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So what he was like back then, we can rest assured that he's like that today. And so when we read God's promises, what it does is it gives us a glimpse into his nature so that we can see what God is like for you and I today. It shows us his proven character that we can lean on when we find ourselves living in our own Babylon. And so what was that message that he gave to the Israelites? And because God's not changing, what is that message we can then draw upon for ourselves? Well, he wanted to remind them of a few things. And some of those things we're going to go through today. And the first thing is this. God wanted to remind them, and he wants to remind you today, that I have a plan that you can't see. I have a plan that you can't see. Now, since the days that Darcy fell head over heels in love with me, um, <laughs> she, <laughs> she has always known what she wanted. She's a very planned and considered person. And so when she decided that a future with me was what she desired, she went in all guns blazing. Now, <laughs> now I wanted to take it slowly. I wanted to be more cautious. I wanted to prayerfully consider what our next steps would be. But Darcy always seemed to be one step ahead. It was so annoying. She always knew what she wanted and was one step ahead of me. Now, we still disagree on our first date. In fact, let me tell you how that unfolded. Darcy was gifted. She did not buy. She was gifted a voucher for a high tea, little cakes and teas and coffees, very nice, at the Langham Hotel. That's fancy. And she asked me to come by saying, hey, I got gifted this voucher and you like tea, don't you? Very friendly. Very casual, very, I guess you'll do. And so, sure, I'll be nicer than you, American girl. We went along, and we had a great time. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed our time together. We ate the things. She coerced me into eating some disgusting things, like this, like, salmon paste thing. It was filthy. Um, she coerced me into eating those because I wanted to honor the moment and honor the occasion and not, you know, waste anything. Um, but now looking back, she's like, I asked you out on our first date. I'm like, I didn't even think that was a date, but Darcy always likes to be one step ahead. So next time she tells you she asked me out on our first date, she's lying. <laughs> now, after dabbling for a little while, uh, things started to get a little bit more serious between us. And I remember this one night, Darcy came around to hang out with me and my flatmates at our house. And we had a great night, and the evening came to a close. And so I walked her out to the car. Yeah, I did and walked out to the car. It was nice, nice summer's evening. We, we get to the car. We hug. There's a sparkle in her eye. And like a girl who just can't wait for her ice cream, she just blurts out, are you going to kiss me or not? <laughs> Pastor Darcy. I would never kiss and tell, so who knows what happened there? Uh, but she never let me lead. It's like she always knew what she wanted, and she always wanted to be one step ahead. So when I finally decided to propose, Darcy had already had to go back to America because her visa expired, and we had planned for me to go and visit in July that year. And I knew that she was expecting, perhaps we hadn't so much chatted about it, but she would have thought that I was going to propose. 
when I came to visit in July because there was really no other opportunity for me to do that. She was on the other side of the world, unless I did it via Zoom, which unacceptable. Um, and so I, I asked for permission from her parents, like through a video chat before the days of Zoom and got the thumbs up. That was freaky. Um, and then so what I did is I came up with this cunning plan. And so I reached out to her employer. I changed the dates of her annual leave without telling her. And so I moved it to May. I booked flights. I told her I was on a youth camp so I couldn't be in contact for a few days and I flew over. That's right. I lied directly to my fiance's face. In the name of surprise, she always wanted to be one step ahead. She liked being in control. She liked knowing what was happening, but not this time. <laughs> I got told off after the first service because I never concluded the story. Uh, she said yes. <laughs> um, she always wanted to know what was happening, and yet the whole time I had a plan. She didn't know it. She couldn't see it. She had no idea, but behind the scenes I had a plan. She, started to, she probably started to think, I assume, man, when's this guy going to propose? He better use it or lose it. I'm out of here. Like, does he realize that this is what I'm waiting for? Does he realize that this is what I want? Does he even care? Is he even listening? And yet behind the scenes, I was very aware. And I had made a plan even though she couldn't see it. I considered every detail. I knew the steps. I was confident on the outcome and I knew she'd love it. That time for us leading up to that was really hard. You know, we felt isolated, we felt distant. In one sense, it felt like hope was fading. And Darcy really struggled with this idea of not being in control of what would happen. And yet behind the scenes, I always had a plan. In your Babylon, it may not seem like it, but God has a plan. And it can feel a bit like that with God, can't it? We've got our dreams, our desires, our plans, our wishes. And when things aren't going as we expected them to, we throw hands in the air and say, God, where are you? Why haven't you stepped in? Why haven't you done anything? We say, God, how could you let that happen? If you have the ability to step in, why didn't you? And we get so frustrated with God. We can sometimes wonder if He's even watching. It's like we know that He's been present the whole time, but God, are you even watching? Are you even listening? Do you even care? And there's some circumstances that we figure He's just tapped out altogether. He doesn't seem to be involved or interested in any way. And it's not rocket science. It doesn't take much to look around the world as the way we have it right now with everything that's going on. For you to come up with a handful of experiences or circumstances where you would stop and say, God, where are you in this? Where are you in this? I wonder how God encouraged the Israelites who found themselves in the same season. Probably asking exactly the same questions. Removed from the promise, distant from where they were meant to be. And asking the questions, God, where are you in all of this? Why haven't you stepped in? Why haven't you done anything? And yet in that moment, God wants to reassure them that He has a plan. He wants to reassure them that, look, I know it doesn't look like it. I know it's hard to understand, and I know you might not get it, but I have a plan. And that's why He said, for I know the plans that I have for you. God knows the plans that He has for you, friend. We, not, we might not know the answer to our circumstances, but what we do know is that God has a plan. And if there's anything that I've learned about God's plans, maybe you can relate, <laughs> is they're not my plans. In fact, they often look very different from my plans. And that's why he reminds us in Isaiah 55 verse 8, he says, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. I don't know if you've ever done this as a kid. I remember doing this as a child. This is a game. 
that we used to play. We'd have two people sit back to back, and one person has a picture, and the other person has a blank piece of paper and a pen. And the person that can see the picture has to use their words to explain so that the other person can draw the picture. And the idea is that the picture getting drawn ends up matching exactly with the picture that already exists. But as nice as that sounds, it doesn't usually work out that way. I want to show you what I mean. Ali, do you want to grab that for me? Um, I need a volunteer, someone who reckons they're pretty good at drawing. Peter, Mr. Freshly Baptized, why don't you come and join us? Peter, I want you to come and stand right here. You're pretty good at drawing? Yes. What's your favorite thing to draw? Um, dragons. Same. Okay. <laughs> you stand here. So what's going to happen? Beautiful. Um, you can't see this, Peter, but you're going to stand on the other side of this board. Now, I need someone that reckons they're okay at giving instructions, like pretty good at just describing what they see. Christian, you can come. Yep. Wait, wait, what? Yeah, all right, supermodel. Let's go. Okay, so in a moment, uh, what I'm going to do, Peter, um, Christian, who you can probably still see him over the whiteboard, um, he's going to explain to you the picture that he sees, and I want you to do your best to draw it exactly like this, but you can't see that, all right? Based on his instructions, draw it as quick, quickly as you can. Uh, oh, right. Does he just start now? Oh. So there's a guy, like, surfing. There's, like, three waves, right? Uh, there's a small island with two coconut trees on there. How's that going? Is he allowed to talk to me? Uh, yeah, so there's a guy surfing. Um, there's an island nearby with two coconut trees. There's that iconic sun in the top left corner with the, but it has sunglasses on. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, Three coconuts on each coconut tree? <laughs> yeah, art's not really my thing, eh? <laughs> Your part is not the art. <laughs> um, that'll do. Give Christian a round of applause, Peter. You can have 10 seconds to finish it off. Was there anything else you remember? If you finish, you finish. It's good. Okay, I want you, you can put the cap back on your pen. Final touches. Yeah, he's got to have feet, otherwise how does he surf? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> totally. Okay, you can put the cat back on and come around the front and let's see what you were trying to draw. That's all good. You can just pop it down, my man. What do you reckon? Did he explain it very well? Oh, that's quite generous. <laughs> all right, now we're going to see what you drew, Peter. Now, this is not, because this is a two-way street, so this is not just a, a reflection on your artwork, but I mean... <laughs> That's not bad. I mean, given the instructions that the poor man received, that's actually very good. The iconic son, the surfer with feet and coconut trees. Well done, Peter. Give Peter a round of applause. Um, I, I don't know if it's ever felt like this to you, but sometimes it feels like we're in Peter's position and we hear that God sees the whole plan. We see that God has the whole picture and we're to trust him to lead us and guide us and to give us instructions. And he's like, left. And you're like, like your left or my left? And at the top, you're like, top or like top, top? And, and we're trying to decipher and figure it out. And sometimes it can be hard to know what it's meant to look like. It can be hard to figure it out. And from, from Peter's side, it's really difficult 
to see what God sees from our limited perspective. But the truth is we serve a God that has a plan even when we can't see it. And He can be trusted. And, and sometimes what it takes is in our journey to get further along in our journey, to come to a place in our relationship with God. And it usually happens in hindsight when we can look back and say, oh, yep. Yeah. I can see that God always had the big picture. Oh, I can see how God was involved. I, I realized when he told me to do it that way, he could actually see more of the scenario than I could see. And it is tricky and it is hard. You've got to be easy on yourself. But we can have confidence and our faith can be built on the fact that God doesn't see this like we do, but God sees what's on the other side. God sees the full picture and he knows more than we do. He can be trusted to guide us and to lead us. Thanks, Ellie. You can get rid of that. That would be awesome. You see, it might not look like it, but God has a plan. And those Israelites in Israel, as they found themselves getting exiled to Babylon, there they were away from the promise. God always had a plan, even though they couldn't see it. Second thing he reminds them and reminds us of today is this. Not only do I have a plan that you can't see, but secondly, my plan is the best plan for you. He says, for I know the plans I have, you, says the Lord. And then he outlines what that's like. He says, they are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Now imagine what the Israelites would have felt when they first heard those words from Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 verse 28 when he said, the exile will be long. Man, talk about like a sucker punch to the gut. Like that's the worst. You find yourself in a place that you don't want to be, away from the promise, away from your purpose, and then you get told, buckle up. You might be there a while. In fact, he says, I want you to plant gardens and build homes, get comfy because you might be here a while yet. How deflating would that have been? In verse 10, God says to them, he says, I need you to know that the exile is going to last 70 years. 70 years. They would have immediately known that that was longer than the 40 years that their ancestors wandered in the wilderness. They would have calculated, that means we're all dying in exile. That means some of our children are going to die in exile as well. Can you see how it would have been so hard for them to believe that even if God had a plan, I don't see how it's a good one. And yet God is so specific in this verse to let his people know that not only does he have a plan, but it's a plan for their good. How is it that, in fact, we need to know that God can use anything to bring about the result that he's looking for? Well, how often do we disqualify ourselves? Yeah, but I've done this, and I've been there, and God wouldn't have any interest in somebody like me. And yet, all throughout Scripture, that's not how we see God work. In fact, he uses the rebellion, and he uses the mistakes of people to accomplish the result that he's after. And that's what he did with the Israelites. See, God used the 40 years in the wilderness to shape his people into a new nation. It was in the wilderness that he established within them the very people that he was calling out of them. He was doing that in exile as well. In the same way that God can use the wilderness to birth a nation, to establish identity, he can use an exile to restore a promise and to reshape people. And what he did in their exile, he can do in yours. You know, one of the best things that could come out of your moment in exile or your time in Babylon is a restored, reshaped, and refocused you. His plan is the best for you. He not only has a plan that you cannot see, but it's the best plan for you, and it's a plan for future, for hope, and for purpose. Third thing is this. God will want to remind you today, I am never far from you. I am never far from you. When I arrived in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, with my well-devised proposal plan. 
I was there at the airport and I hired a car. I got a little upgrade. It was nice as because American cars are flash. And I remember pulling out of the airport on the other side of the car. I was like on the wrong side of the car, on the wrong side of the road. And I had no Wi-Fi to help me get to where I was going, okay? Maybe I didn't plan everything that well. But there I was. It was a Saturday night, downtown Boston. And here I am like a Muppet in a car with no way to figure out where I'm going. But I remembered the name of the hotel that I was looking for. And so I just drove around for two or three hours navigating the one-way streets until I saw it. I was like, there it is. I'm going the other way. And had to figure it out. I was like, I've got nothing else to do except find my hotel and get checked. And eventually, I get myself close, probably broke a few laws in the process, find a car park. And I remember checking into the hotel. I was so excited. I walked in, dropped my bags, went up to the window and looked out over the glistening lights of downtown Boston. And I started to get so excited. Like Darcy thought, I was 14,473 kilometers away. She felt distant. She felt isolated. But the truth was, I was less than five. Just around the corner. I was so much closer than she thought. And I was so excited to be close to the one that I loved. I couldn't wait to see her, to embrace her, to hug her. If that sparkle came again, I'd be get out. I just couldn't wait to be close. She felt so distant. And yet that whole time, I was closer than she ever knew. You know, God is closer than it ever feels. God has such a deep love for you and I. Far more than I could have for Darcy. It's a heavenly love. It's a father's love. It's a perfect love. And he's so much love for you and I. And his greatest desire is that he would be close to you. You know, it's interesting at the very beginning of Jeremiah, when God first tells Jeremiah to deliver that message to those in exile, we get a glimpse into the way that God works. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking. And God speaking to Jeremiah says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I love that what God is doing here is he's instilling within Jeremiah the very message that he would then go and deliver to the Israelites. What was it? I have a plan and I have a plan for you. But Jeremiah protested, oh no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth for you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Do as you're told. He says, do not be afraid of anyone. For I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. Jump down to verse 11. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, asking, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I replied, I see a branch of an almond tree. It sounds a bit random. God's giving some imagery here. It says, The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I watch over my word to accomplish it. NLT translation of verse 12 there says, And the Lord said, That's right. And it means I am watching, and I will certainly carry out all my plans. Man, what a relief for Jeremiah to hear that. And what an assurance for you and I that when God gives a purpose, He promises His presence. That's significant. When God calls you to something, when God gives you a purpose, He promises His presence. He doesn't send you out the door and say, good luck, hope it goes well, hope you don't get devoured, I hope you manage to get your way to the end. We don't serve a God like that. We don't serve a God that waits for us at their destination, but rather one that is with us in the journey. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you search for me wholeheartedly, you will find me and I will be found by you, said the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, when you need me, I'm close. 
I'm not far away. I'm easily found. In fact, I've been closer than you realized this whole time. We want you to know I am never far from you. Fourth and final thing, and Ben, you guys can join me, is this. I can turn this around. God wants to remind you today that I can turn this around. Man, how deflating for the Israelites to finally make their way to the promised land. And then there they find themselves exiled to a place called Babylon, a place of loss, a place of grief, not where they were meant to be. And God wants them to know that one day this too shall pass. This troubling season, this tough place that you're in, it will pass. And when it does, I want to bring you home. He wanted them to know, I'm a God in the restoration business. And I'm not only in that business, but actually it's my primary goal here. It's the grand finale that I'm working towards, that you would be restored and redeemed and brought back home. He says, I can turn this around. Story goes that there's a pastor named A.J. Gordon, and he was the pastor, funnily enough, in a church in Boston. And there he is one day outside his church. This was an old story. And there's a young boy that comes along with an old rusty cage filled with some wild, fluttering, nervous birds. And he says to the boy, son, where did you get the birds? He says, I found them out in the field. He says, that's interesting. And what are you going to do with them? He says, well, I, I guess I'll just play with them and then give them to an old cat that we have at home. When the pastor offered to buy the birds, he says, sir, you don't want these birds. They're just old, wild birds, and they're not even good singers. Well, the pastor offered to buy the cage and the birds for two whole dollars, which was a lot of money back in those days. And the little boy agreed. He says, fine, I'll do it, but sir, you're making a bad trade. So there goes the boy whistling down the street, happy as Larry with his new shiny coins. And the pastor takes his birdcage round to the back of the church building. He slowly opens the flap and allows these nervous, fluttering birds to burst out and begin flying heavenward. pastor took that empty cage into church the next Sunday to help him illustrate his sermon about how Christ came to seek and save the lost and how he paid for their freedom with his blood the once and for all sacrifice that would bring freedom to them. And he said to the congregation that day, he said, it's interesting because the young boy told me that these birds weren't songsters. But I swear, as they winged their way heavenward, I believe they were chirping, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. I need to let you know today that it doesn't matter how shackled and trapped you feel. It doesn't matter how restricted and caged in you might feel. It doesn't matter that you are no longer doing the thing that you know you were meant to do. There is a God who loves you, a God who wants to turn it all around and to bring you freedom. Come on, even when it looks hopeless, He says, I can turn that around. Even when it seems like there's no way out, He says, I'm the God of miracles and I can turn that around. Even when I am where I am because of my own mistakes, God says true and yet I can still turn that around. Even when I'm far from where I want to be, he says, I can turn that around. And even when the exile is long, he says, I can turn that around. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. He says, I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you up out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your own land. Maybe you're feeling like you're in the middle of your Babylon. You were once in the middle of your purpose, once on the right track, once in the right place, but for whatever reason, it feels like you've just drifted away from God. 
story of a young boy named Tom. And one day Tom took his little toy boat down to the river. He was so proud of it. He had made it himself. And as he let the boat out, he released the string out for his boat. And as he sat on the bank enjoying the sunshine, he just marveled at how beautifully the boat was bobbling up and down on the water. He was enjoying his time, but eventually a strong current came along and Tom tried to pull the boat back in, but the rope snapped and the boat began to drift down the river. Of course, Tom jumped up and he started chasing down the riverside, but the current was strong and it went further and further and further until it was out of sight. Tom searched all afternoon until it was too dark and he went home feeling defeated. Well, a few days later, Tom was walking home from school And as he walked past the shop window, he saw a boat that looked just like his. And so he rushed over to inspect it closely. And sure enough, it was his boat. And so he rushed in and he spoke to the manager. He said, sir, that's my boat. I made it. The manager said, sorry, son. Someone brought it in this morning. If you want it, you're going to have to pay $1 for it. Well, Tom rushed home, counted up all of his coins, exactly one dollar. He rushed back. He handed over the money. He got his boat. And as he walked out of the store, hugging that little boat, he whispered to it, now you're twice mine. Firstly, because I made you. And secondly, because I bought you. I don't know if you feel like your rope is broken and the current of life has sent you downstream out of sight. But there is a God who has been pursuing you every day of your life. He loves you. And you're not only His because He made you, but you're His because He bought you. You're twice His. He bought you by sending His Son, Jesus, who was deserving of no punishment. He was sinless. He was blameless. But He sent His Son, Jesus, to a cross because the Bible tells us that every one of us has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that sin in our life, it disconnects us from a perfect God. And that sin, the penalty for that is death. So rather than us having to pay that, He sent His Son Jesus to pay that on our behalf. He paid the full price. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and He says, it is finished, you know what He meant? He meant there is nothing else to do. You don't need to work your way towards me. You don't need to measure up. It's not about what you know. It's about surrender. Everything that needed to be done has been done. And there is a way for you to have fresh life and a new start today. I wanna pray a prayer in just a moment. This is without a doubt the most important thing that we ever do in our Sunday church services. In fact, it's why we have them. Every single week we have people come into our services that don't know Jesus. They pray an honest prayer and something shifts in their life. It can sometimes feel like everything has changed and nothing has changed all at the same time. But the promises in the Bible are that if you give your life to God, you ask Him to forgive you, you'd be made brand new today. I'm gonna pray a prayer out loud. I wanna invite everyone here just to close their eyes. If you want God to forgive you of your sin, you wanna start a relationship with Him to know the God that would say that you're twice His because He made you and because He bought you, then you pray this prayer and mean it with everything you've got. You pray it from your heart, I'll pray it out loud. Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I've sinned. I've chosen my own way above your way. And because of everything, I just feel like I've drifted away from you. But in this moment, I declare that I believe Jesus paid the price that I deserve to pay so that I could walk in freedom. God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you do. I invite you into my life life as my Lord, the Father in heaven that could be trusted to guide me. 
and I invite you in as my Savior, the only one that could pay that price on my behalf. Today I give you my whole life, holding nothing back in Jesus' name.